0: Morning, my name is Jordan. If you're visiting here this morning, I'm a pastoral intern here at Church 21. Luckily, you don't you don't have to hear from me more this morning. We're actually going to pass it over to my friend Michael. Um, So Michael is a speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Our paths, I guess, coincided about five years ago, where God began to stir in each one of our hearts, and we ended up studying in the same program in the UK. Um, And Michael's become a very passionate and gifted communicator of the breaking rule and reign of Jesus in this world. It's based in Washington, D.C. Um, I'll just pray for you. Sure. Thank Next you. Great. Lord, I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that you speak through us by your grace and declare your goodness and your truth over your people in this city. So I pray that we'd be attentive to what you have to say to us this morning. Peace as he Power as he Amen.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to position myself as far forward on this stage as possible because I like to see faces. And right now, you're a little bit uh, in the shadow. So I'm going to be peering at you from behind these bright lights. But it is great to be here. This is my first time in Montreal. I have never been to Quebec, but it has been on my to visit list for many years. Um, So it's really good to be here and great to see Jordan. Fun fact about Jordan, if you don't know, he is the world's fastest walker. Um, When we lived in Oxford, there was actually a collective awe at how um, Jordan, you know how a snake can kind of unhitch its jaw when it's like, you know, eating food. Jordan does that with his hips. They just come unlocked and he, it's just, they turn into rubber and it's just this incredible movement. If you've never seen it, you really should see it. Um, it's an incredible thing. I think Ripley's is, has bids on his body. So, um, but yeah, no, Jordan is a dear brother. Um, it's such a privilege to get to know him in England and, um, and hear his story. He, he really is a, a man transformed by the love and grace of God. And um, if you don't know his story, ask him. It's, it's an incredible story of encountering God and, and just really receiving the fullness that Jesus died to give us. And so I encourage you to to get to know him better if you don't. Um, But it's great to be here. I do live in Washington, D.C. Normally, I would be moderately proud of that. Um, But given the recent uh, Caps um, Montreal game, I'm a little, if you're a hockey fan, you know that Montreal scored three goals in the last, like, four minutes of play. Hold your applause, please. Um, So that is, yes, I'll concede on this one occasion. Um, But... I live in Washington, D.C. and have been there for the last four years, um, based there as a speaker with um, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and what we, the aim of what we do is to help thinkers to believe and believers to think, and it really is in that order for a reason. First and foremost, we want to engage um, the valid questions, objections, reservations, hesitations of people when they're considering God and Christianity, and we also want to encourage and equip believers to share their faith with confidence and boldness. So I've been there. Um, glad to be here. Um, thank you um, for reading, for sitting through this long passage, but I think there are some things for us to consider. And just to clear up the confusion about the Trigon, um, are there any guitar players in the room? Okay. I see a lot of hands, actually. Great. Um, do you know the Flying V? Is it electric guitar? Basically, the Trigon is the ancient Near East version of the Flying V. It's kind of this triangular harp-looking Guitar. I don't know that they took the Jack Black, you know, School of Rock power stance when they played this or not. Um, Presumably, no. But um, that's what a trigon is. Sounds like um, they were ahead of their time um, when it comes to instruments. But let's consider this passage. This is um, a chapter three in the book of Daniel, and I want to consider a little bit of what's led up in the first two chapters that's brought us to this story. Um, So, the book of Daniel, for those of you who don't know. Um, They detail the events of Daniel's life in the 500 and 600s BC. So this is an ancient historical text, um, and it looks specifically at these Jewish men in Babylon. So that begs a very important question. Why are they there? How did they get there? Well, we know from chapter 1, verse 1, it says that God delivers Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. So, what's happened here is that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered Judah and he has brought the Israelites into Babylon. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is very interesting. As soon as they arrive, as soon as he gets the people into Babylon, he orders that certain Jews be brought to his palace. And this is how he describes those. He says, those of royal family and of the nobility youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in wisdom endowed with knowledge understanding and learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the chaldeans so that's very interesting why in the world if you're nebuchadnezzar are you going to ask he says basically says bring me the best looking the brightest the most capable, those who have status in the nation, and bring them to my palace. Why does he do that? Why would he do that? He, he basically selects the cream of the crop, and he says, you bring them to me. And there's four of those who are mentioned. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these four men, young men, presumably, probably, in their late teens, maybe early 20s, young men are brought to the king's palace. And there's a purpose in this. Nebuchadnezzar is very tactful. And the purpose is this assimilation of the nation. That he's brought these people from a foreign nation so he takes the best and the brightest. If you want to access a culture, if you want to shape a culture, who uh, in that culture do you need to most deeply affect? The leaders, the influencers, the best, the brightest, the beautiful. And he gathers those people and he puts them in his university. They eat from his table and he begins this assimilation process, this homogenization of Daniel and his friends. And we don't have time to go through all the events of chapter one, but I would encourage you to look at this and read this chapter and consider for yourself what it might, might have been like to be Daniel and his friends being brought into the Babylonian city. And they were, it's interesting, Daniel was given a new name. His name, Daniel, means God is my judge in Hebrew. And again, I think very tactfully, Nebuchadnezzar says, no, that won't do. Because you can imagine Daniel in the Babylonian university and somebody saying, Daniel, or in, in his own language, Deniel, what does that mean? And Daniel would have said, well, God is my judge. God, which, which God? I serve um, Aku, Who, which God do you serve? you know, these are the kinds of conversations I can imagine, I know that this is a church full of university students maybe you have similar conversations but this would have happened in the university so Nebuchadnezzar very tactfully also wants to assimilate them at the level of their identity and he gives gives Daniel a new name and his name is Belteshazzar in other words Bel protects me interesting such a deep assimilation into Babylonian culture And if you can imagine being an Israelite at that time, generally Israelites were, they lived in rural areas. They were sort of an agrarian culture. And then they're brought into Babylon and enter through this massive Ishtar gate with lions and bulls um, sort of mosaiced into this brick formation. And they're brought into this procession. And you can see the images of the Babylonian gods in this Ancient Near, this thriving ancient Near city city with an advanced culture, advanced in the sciences, mathematics, philosophy, literature, they were way ahead of their time. And here these four come in to Babylon, and they're summoned by the king to be in his palace. Can you imagine what it must have been like to stand in their shoes? It's an incredible picture, and it's not just the culture that's different; it's the spirituality, it's the religion. Babylon served all kinds of materialistic gods. These are gods that are derivative of nature. They are natural gods, so to speak. In other words, they were the natural forces deified. That's very different than the god that the Israelites served, who's the god over all of creation. He's not derived from creation. Creation is derived from God. And yet here are Daniel and his friends, in a materialistic culture, with all kinds of physical idols, different gods around him in this procession and, and they enter into Babylon. And you probably, maybe you're familiar with this story. Nebuchadnezzar has them in his palace and he issues, you, issues a decree. He says, I've had a dream and I need an interpretation. So he goes to his wise men, his astrologers, and he says, um, I need an interpretation for my dream. He, they say to him, tell us your dream. He says, no, you tell me my dream. You claim to be the wise men of Babylon. If you have these capacities, you tell my dream and give me the interpretation. I don't know about you, but that's a, that's a pretty high bar, generally, for your employer to ask you something like that. But he's calling them out. He's saying, you claim to have access to the supernatural realm. Tell me my dream. And when we discover, Daniel then volunteers, and I, again, I don't have quite time to go into depth on this part, but he volunteers to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream before he knows the dream and asks God for mercy. And he receives a vision of the dream. And he goes and he meets with Nebuchadnezzar. And when we find out what the dream is, it starts to make sense as to why Nebuchadnezzar was so reluctant to be public about what he actually saw. Do you remember the dream? It was a colossal man with a head of gold, with a chest and arms of silver, legs and thighs of bronze, and... Sorry, thighs of bronze, legs and feet of iron, and the feet, iron and clay, mixed, brittle. And in the dream, a stone comes and lands on the feet of the man, and the man crumbles. Now, if you're Nebuchadnezzar and you're leading Babylon, and you want an interpretation of this dream, why would you be hesitant to share that? It's a vulnerability, isn't it? To tell your trusted advisors, I'm having this dream. It's a colossal man, and he's crumbling. And if I'm, you know, looking to scheme my way into Babylonian leadership, I might interpret that dream as, good old Neb is having some doubts, isn't he? Maybe this is my time. So Neb says, Nebuchadnezzar says, you tell me my dream. And he brings them in. Daniel tells him the dream. He gives him an interpretation that involves a succession of kingdoms. And he specifically says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, but an inferior kingdom will rise up and come after you and then we come to chapter three so this is this is a fascinating thing that happens Nebuchadnezzar he he receives this this vision uh, or this interpretation he has confirmation that um He says to Daniel, truly, your God is the God of gods, the king of lords, a revealer of mysteries. He has this encounter with the the mysterious power and wisdom of God through Daniel's interpretation. And then we come to chapter three. And what has Nebuchadnezzar done? He's built a statue out of gold. And and he was specifically told, you are the golden head. And, no pun intended, I think the vision, went to Nebuchadnezzar's head. And he then constructed an image for himself. And what, this is where Nebuchadnezzar is just such an intriguing individual. You've just witnessed the supernatural power of God. And he still can't get past his insecurity about power. And so what does he do? Well, he builds this obelisk, this golden obelisk, and he calls people to come and worship it. And he remembers the words of Daniel, um, after you, another kingdom will come. And so why does he build this? I believe he does this to consolidate his power. Um, If I'm the head of gold, then let it be known that that's who I am. And so who did he call together? Did he call the nation to come and bow before the obelisk? No, he didn't. Chapter three, verse two. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together, set, yeah, sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then we have that list again, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and there's this emphasis of these specific positions. Who are these people? They are the leadership of Babylon. He wanted the police, the judiciary, the politicians, the governors. This is a top-level meeting to consolidate power and to communicate to, him, to them, to remind them who is really in charge. And you can't, you know, sort of broadcast this in Babylon at this point. So he has to gather the leadership there. And there's this repetition, for whatever reason we have a massive repetition of the instruments, I don't know really what's, what's going on with that, but there's some specific purpose in that, but there is repetition, repetition of the leadership, there's also repetition of this phrase the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up and re- repeatedly, we hear that there's, Nebuchadnezzar has an image of himself that he set up we're pretty good at setting up images of ourselves aren't we? I think today you can probably think of several ways that that's possible. To construct an image of how you'd like to be perceived or what you wish you were or who you think you should be, there's lots of avenues for setting up images of ourselves. And here we have an ancient Near East example of King Nebuchadnezzar doing just that. And so what's the question at stake here? Well, it's a question of values. I mentioned something earlier when I talked about chapter 1, verse 1. How did these men come to be in Babylon? Do you remember it said that Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Judah, had been delivered into Nebuchadnezzar's hands and along with some of the vessels from the house of God. So basically what that's communicating is that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered a nation, and like any king, he wants to demonstrate... That he has done this and, and, the, and the relics of the nations that he's conquered. And so in his, presumably in his palace or in a museum nearby, he takes the most valuable possessions of that nation and he puts them on display so that you can see who he has conquered. And in the case of Israel, he takes the, their most precious vessels from the temple and he brings them to Babylon. And it's interesting that they're specifically mentioned. Why? Because there's a theme that begins in in the first chapter of Daniel and it runs throughout as you read the book and study it for yourself. And it's the theme of values. The question is, what is of absolute value? And these vessels that were taken from the temple, they were sacred, they were set apart, they were holy for a specific purpose. They represented a value system. And Nebuchadnezzar has relativized that absolute value. And here we have... Another outworking of this. The essence of idolatry really is just that. Once you have relativized the absolute, once you have removed the absolute, removed God from his place of absolute value, you will have very little problem absolutizing the relative. And that's exactly what we see in our culture in this age of relativism, where actually absolutes aren't acknowledged anymore. We're in a post post truth era. Where everyone gets to decide for themselves what's true for them, what's right for them, what's good for them. Everybody exists in their own moral universe where they get to decide. And you can see that as absolutes have gone, everything is up for a redefinition and a reevaluation. And that includes the human person, life itself. Is life valuable? I had a question just the other day about assisted dying. You know, questions like this Is life valuable? What does it mean to be a human person? These are questions that are emerging in our culture because of the relativization of the absolute. And that's what's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's case as well. He has relativized God and he is absolutizing that which is relative. So it becomes a matter of values. And then he puts this to his leadership You have a choice. Bow in front of Nebuchadnezzar, or you go to the furnace. That's the choice. The question is, how valuable is my life? Is my life of absolute value? Is your life of absolute value? That question may not be actually as simple as it seems. Because here, we have three men who are unwilling to bow. And this incites Nebuchadnezzar into sort of this fury and rage because he didn't have power over them. Why? Because like every other person in Nebuchadnezzar's position, he starts to regard life as an absolute value. So what that means is that people will do anything to save their lives. That's what he's assuming. It's of absolute value and people will do whatever it takes to save their own skin. But in Babylon, he found three men who would not bow, and they didn't regard life as absolute value, and it rendered Nebuchadnezzar powerless. And that is why he's enraged. This is not a matter of worldview for Nebuchadnezzar. This is not a matter of, I want to snuff out that belief system. It's a matter of power. That's what it is. And he's rendered powerless because the only leverage and the, the greatest capital he has, which is their lives, and he puts them on the line and they say, it's not worth it. We will not bow because their lives were not of absolute value to them. And Nebuchadnezzar is incensed. Who are these men? Daniel three thirteen. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Actually, before we go on there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their names have also been changed to parodies of their Hebrew names that exalt Babylonian gods. Just so you know, these are the same characters under different names. So he orders them to be brought, and Nebuchadnezzar answered them, and he says, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that you have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And here's the key question that he asks them. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? This isn't about Nebuchadnezzar's gods. This is about him constructing a veiled image of himself. It's about power. And the critical question is, who will deliver you? Who has a greater power than I have in this moment? And it goes on in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered him and said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship your golden image that you have set up. Now that, to me, is spectacular. What these men have said, that what this goes to show is that Daniel and his friends are really made of the same stuff. They're really going out on a limb here. They say, listen, we know our God can deliver us out of your but even if he doesn't, put us in the furnace. We'll go into the fire. That is some serious boldness. Serious. I don't know how you'd feel in that situation. What you'd have to say to King Nebuchadnezzar when he calls you out and says, I heard you're not bowing. You know what's going to happen to you, right? Who's going to deliver you out of, out of my hand in this situation? Oh, well... Our God will, but even if he doesn't, what is in the That's incredible resolve that Daniel's friends show in this moment. So Nebuchadnezzar is here asserting his absolute power, and he couldn't believe what he heard. And he discovered in this moment that there was a limit to the exercise of his power. Formally, he already knew from Daniel's interpretation of his dream, that time was a limitation on his power, that other kingdoms would come. But here, in this moment, he already knows it's temporarily limited. Now he's learning that it's actually restricted, that there is something else. There's a greater power. And it's when these men say, throw us into the fire. So they were delivered into the fire. And the story says they, we can assume from the story that they didn't suffer. Is that true? Is that true that they didn't suffer at all? I think the the answer to that question is no. This is why. These guys were leaders, they were promoted. Now, I don't know if if you, imagine yourself in a governor position in Babylon and you hear about this image that's been set up and you hear that Nebuchadnezzar has issued a decree that everybody in the leadership will come and they will bow before it and you know, I'm not gonna bow. And you have to go home and you have to tell your spouse and you have to tell your kids, Nebuchadnezzar's called all the leadership, we're convening, and he set up an image, this golden image, and he's asking us all to worship it, and I'm not going to bow. And your kids say to you, but but you, like, you know this isn't real, like, this isn't, that's not a God, like, you know this is just, like, an idol, just, just get it over with, you know, like, and yet they say, no, I'm not going to bow. Can you imagine what they went through? I mean, I, honestly, this, it baffles me. I can't imagine the kind of pressure that they felt, but the resolve that they had to have. So did they suffer? I think so. I think they had a tremendous amount of pressure in this decision. Because it's really, this is a question now, where it really is a question of what are your ultimate values? Nebuchadnezzar announces this, and you have everything against you. On one side, you have your job, your life, your family, their kids, if they had families, presumably they did, their future, and on the other side of that equation, you have God, and you have to choose. All of that or faithfulness to God. It's an ultimate choice, and it's honestly a choice that many people still face today around the world. In fact, just a week ago, I heard stories of this. Many people still face this choice, um, this is from Matthew. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But these are powerful words because this ultimate choice that exists in Daniel extends right through to the New Testament, and Jesus himself says, You have a choice. And anyone who seeks to follow me and be my disciple, it's going to cost you everything. This is not a small request. It's a beautiful one, but it's not a small request. And I, I kind of wonder, what are the factors? You know, the, the instruments piece is, is kind of fascinating. Why did they give so much emphasis to the music? This is actually one of the first historical instances of music being used to weaken inhibitions. There's something about music. There's something about when you... Nebuchadnezzar said, when you hear this, then you bow. And it's, why would he do that? There's just... I don't mean to sound like... Probably sound like 1950s, you know, you want to label me as a curmudgeon or something like this. Like, don't listen to that music or whatever. Like, that's not what I mean. But what, what I do mean is that these things have power. They have influence on us. And Nebuchadnezzar utilizes that to weaken the inhibitions of people so that they will bow. And I would ask you in your life, what are the environmental factors that weaken your inhibitions? Are there any that you can think of? Immediately, I remember actually going to Italy for the first time and walking around the Roman Palatine. Has anybody been to Rome and and seen this place? Yes. It's amazing. But you know what dawned on me while I was walking around? That I live better than any Caesar of Rome ever did. That I'm actually more comfortable And live a more lavish life than any single leader of the entire Roman Empire. And so do you. Think about that for a second. Think about just how incredibly comfortable and luxurious our lives are. If you think that that's not an inhibiting factor, you might want to reevaluate. I believe that it probably is. I know it is for me. I know it is for me. And so we can think about these things. So Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. And what he says, he says, he looks up, he rises up in haste, he looks into the furnace and he says, did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered him and said, true, O king, we did. And he answered, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Yes, amen, indeed. And this is just an incredible moment it's an incredible moment where Nebuchadnezzar is confronted with this reality and then they come out and I, you know, I'll just, i am honestly like, this, this moment for me is one of the most incredibly challenging moments in the whole of scripture as far as faithfulness to God. I remember a conversation I had with a young woman in Oxford who was a Muslim and she ended up in conversation with me because she was having rep- repetitive dreams where she was um, waking up, speaking different phrases from the Psalms. She'd never read the Bible. She'd had no, no exposure to the Christian faith. She's, she had her hijab on and she said to me, "She said, I think this is from Christianity, but I don't know. And I said, well, what are you saying? And she started reciting Psalm 23. And I said, have you ever read the Bible? And she said, no. And I said, can I show you something? And she said, go for it. And I cracked Psalm 23 and I showed her and she said, I knew it was from Christianity. And that was her big, profound moment. And I thought there is so much more here, like so much more going on. And we started that dialogue. But I'll never forget what she said actually during that conversation. We ta- I asked her a question. I said, if you believe this is true, what are you going to do? And she said, well, if this is true, and she had come to, the, to, to a point where she thought it might be, she said, I, mean, I have no choice. And she knew it would cost her everything. Her family, her friendships, that everything would go. And within 24 hours, she made that decision. Largely because we later went to a church service for the first time. And the sermon was on how God speaks today through visions and dreams. And there was a prayer for Islam and a prayer for the Middle East. And one of the specific phrases she used repetitively in our conversation was, I have eternal questions, Michael. And Islam isn't answering them. I have eternal, there are questions of eternity on my heart and I don't know where to find the answers but I think maybe in Christianity they're there. And I kid you not, the pastor who was preaching that day, we were sitting in the front row, of course, and he looked at her, he gestured to her, and he said, "God has written eternal questions on your heart, to which Jesus is the answer." And my jaw dropped, and I'm like, you know, nudging her and saying, you know, and she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I'm like, uh huh, yes, yes, this is, and this incredible moment, this incredible transformation, and she asked me after the service I said can I pray for you for anything and she said pray that I have the courage to tell my family and I said to tell them why and she couldn't say it and I said to tell them that you want to become a Christian and she said yes and so I said well let's pray for that first and then we'll pray for courage and she made that decision and she lost her family there are people who face this choice all over the world and it's a choice that's actually in front of every single one of us Our circumstances may not bring that right before us. But Jesus does. He brings it to you every single day. I have a feeling that there are people in this room who identify a little more closely with the people who bowed than Dana's friends. And if that's you, I just want you to know, that's me too. That's me too. Where are you in this story? I'm so thankful for the words of Paul in Philippians 3.13. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. If that's you, that you feel like you are in the crowd who bowed, I just want you to know today it is not too late for you. It's not. Our God is a faithful God of forgiveness. And he's interested in you. No matter what ways you have failed, to stand firm and be faithful to him. He will never cease to be faithful to you. But let's not forget the price that was paid to make that possible. And that's what we respond to with our lives. So Paul is saying in the New Testament, the past is the past. Leave it there. Move on. Press on. And that's an invitation to all of you or any of you who feel like you're in those shoes this morning. There's one last point I want to make here before I bring this to a close, and that's this. I was reading this chapter 3, and I noticed something I've never noticed. I don't know if that's ever happened to you when you read a, a specific passage and you see something you've never noticed. Even something so familiar as this. This is the type of story, I don't know if anybody grew up with the felt boards, you know, with the biblical characters. Yes, okay. This is one of those, you know, the fiery furnace. This is something you hear from second grade on. And yet, sometimes you can go back to these texts and you can see something you've never seen before. And that happened to me when I was reading this. This is what I noticed. They are... When they are put into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar sees them. And they come out, and nothing has changed, except for one thing. It says that they weren't burnt... It says that their garments weren't burnt. It says their hair wasn't singed. And it says there's not even a scent of smoke on them, but there's one thing that's changed. They went into the fire bound and they came out unbound. That changed. They went into the fire, not knowing what would happen. Jesus met them in the fire and they came out unbound. And I believe that God is interested in meeting some of you in this room in that fire and that he is interested in raising up voices from Church 21 who will come out with an unbound witness in this city. I believe that. And that's my challenge to you. That's my invitation to you this morning. Can you imagine the boldness that they must have lived with after this event? Can you imagine walking out of that furnace? I, I, I mean, I, I would have loved to hear what just like the, community, the other leaders said about this. I mean, they saw it too. And it changed a nation. The next thing we read at the end of the chapter is this. Um, sorry, this is the beginning of the next chapter. And it's written in first person by Nebuchadnezzar. The book of Daniel is the only book in the Bible that's written in two languages. And the reason for that is because Nebuchadnezzar is also an author. And he writes first person in chapter 4, and he says this, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his songs, how mighty his wonders, Or, sorry, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. It's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. You can read it in chapter four. And that is a result of God's witness to Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of the most thriving, advanced, secularized, materialistic nation in the ancient Near East because of the faithfulness of three Jewish men who had the courage to go into the fire. Do you have that courage? Are you available for that moment where Jesus will meet you there, where you don't know the outcome, but you trust that if it's God's will to deliver you, he'll meet you in the fire. That's my invitation to you to consider this morning. So if you would just stand with me um, as we close here. Um, I'm going to pray for us. And... If there are any of you for whom this is really just kind of tugging on your heart, where you sense either one of two things, either one where you feel this morning like you just identify more closely with those who bowed than Daniel's friends who went to the furnace, then I want to pray for you. And I want to pray, I want to give you an opportunity just to have a moment with God where you can just come before him. First John says that, If we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a beautiful promise. And if that's you, you can come to God exactly where you are with whatever it is in your life that you have exalted over God's call and invitation on your life. You can bring that to Him today. And if you are here and you sense that actually you're being stirred to be used by God in this city, in your community, in your sphere of influence, to be a faithful witness, an unbound witness then I want to pray for that group too. But would you all just um, bow your heads with me? And if that's you, if you find yourself in one of those two groups, if you would just posture yourself to receive from God, um, I think that that can be just a a, a powerful, physical gesture to God um, as wanting to receive from Him. So let's let's pray together. And I'll just invite the, the band to come up as well. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for each one here. And I just thank you for your word and the opportunity just to to delve into this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. God, men who were faithful to you even in the face of fire. And I thank you, God, that you are so faithful to them that you met them in the fire and that through their lives, God, you brought change to an empire. And Father, I just pray for everyone in this room, for those of who, those here who who identify with those who who bowed to the image, God. And that goes for me too, God. We just come to you um, just in honesty and in confession before you. And I just um, invite you to do that and just offer to God whatever it is that you need to in this moment. between you and him. So Father, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent your son um, to come into this world and, and live the life that we haven't lived to die the death that we should have died and that he died it in our place. And that in rising from the dead, promising forgiveness from the past, new life in the present and a hope for the future, God, we just receive that afresh from you right now in this moment, Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone here, you would just cleanse them by your spirit and that you would fill them afresh here. In Jesus' name. And for those of you who are stirred for this city, for your nation, for your friends, for your co-workers, for your family. Father, I just pray for those people in this room, that they would be filled up with the fullness of Christ, the same boldness that the disciples stood in front of um, the Jewish leaders, and they looked at them and said, they were astonished at their boldness because they were common people, but they knew that they had been with Jesus. And I pray for those people here, that they would meet with you, Jesus, and that they would be marked by your presence And the boldness of your spirit, God, would you fill them afresh right now in Jesus' name. Thank you, God. And so, Father, we just offer our lives to you afresh. And we just thank you for your goodness to us. That even when we are not faithful to you, you are always faithful to us. And that your mercies are new every single morning. We praise you, God, that you are good. In Jesus' name.